This is The Strategist, episode 806. My name is Zane Velji. With me, as always, Stephen Carter, Corey Hogan. Guys, what's going on? It's the end of the world, Zane, as it oh, always okay. has been, it, as it is. End of the world as we know it. We keep starting episodes with that. I, I don't know if that's true, but I do think that... Um, you don't think so? Uh, no, no, no. It's not oh, yeah, you're the optimistic one. Status quo, Corey Hogan, here we go. Which one of the two of us has that role? And it's you who's the optimist. I'd forgotten. That's good. I'll tell you though, Zane, um, I got in trouble for last episode. I got in trouble from my wife. How and why? Is it because I said I don't care about your daughter? What do you no, ask me? Amazingly, that, actually, now that I think about the fact that that is not what got her ire up, I, maybe I can reverse the, the rage here. But it was because I said that nobody I was talking to was saying defund the police. And she said, what are you talking about? I'm always talking about moving money from the police to public health. You never listen. And I think this is an important lesson in how branding matters. Because I never heard her say defund the police. Never heard that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I was I, right, I think. And I think she was wrong. I, I and, and we're we're analyzing the political strategy of doubling down. Uh, that is what Corey Hogan <laughs> has just done, uh, saying he was right. Uh, of course, no. I'm glad. I'm glad that when uh, when you asked me yesterday, saying last week, I should say, uh, signaling we had a new podcast, uh, and it was also was it your daughter's birthday. I said I don't care about her. Uh, so clearly, the Hogan household is a very erudite and elevated uh, group of thinkers. Well, Zane, you know, yesterday was my son's birthday. One of my two sons' birthdays. Yeah, so. can't care either. No, <laughs> no <laughs> just, I mean, really, we we great. first of all don't know how many kids you have nine, um, and secondly, <laughs> we don't know. Well, any do you of remember the, we used to be invited? To, we used to be invited to the birthday parties. We you remember did. that. That's over now. We don't get. They doesn't even mention us. We get no pieces of. Cake. Yeah, guys, that's not a COVID thing. That's Nothing. that. That's really pretty reflective of well, you know this general air. Our first segment, race of a different kind. Guys, we've been talking about race. We've been talking about discrimination. We've been talking about the protests in the USA. I want to talk about race of a different kind. And of course, that different kind of race is the conservative leadership race. Yes, it is still happening. Uh, Yes, it is still going on. And Carter, I want to start with you on this. You know, the conventional wisdom, which has been so right so often in the last half decade, says that this thing is a lock for Peter McKay. Uh, where do you kind of assess the tea leaves, zooming out from a thirty thousand foot lens right now of of whether this thing is a, is a short thing for Peter McKay? Well, I don't think anybody can make any predictions about this particular race. It is not. Uh, first of all, it's not happening under normal circumstances. Um, you know, normally this this would have been over. We could you know we could move on. Everything would be done, uh, or at least should be done. I'm not a big fan of these long leaderships. They just kind of continue on forever anyways. But this one is so messed up because um, Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole uh, are, are pretending to be people that I've never seen before. I don't even know who they are. Like, they're not even playing characters in a political soap opera. They're playing caricatures in some sort of political sitcom. And I, I can't even understand uh, what's happening, why it's happening, and why this is the race that um, the Conservative Party of Canada thinks is going to actually allow them to rebuild uh, their political machine. Um, I, I mean, I got called a, a left winger on Twitter the other day, and my answer to that was, how far right has the right wing gone? And the right wing has gone crazy. Like Peter McKay, I've known Peter McKay since like 1997, and he is gone. I don't know who he is. I don't know what he stands for anymore. He is, 
he's playing a different type of politics for a different type of audience. And I think that that's, that's a problem because you can't separate these leaderships now from the general elections that are going to follow. The brand gets established by the leader and the leader leader's brand is established during the race. Corey, same question to you. I mean, conventional wisdom says this is Peter McKay's to lose, but Carter brings up an interesting point. And it's almost a point around the Conservative Party uh, pushing this race to the right by their own making, kind of like how they did last time. Um, do you see see the same sort of picture from from your your lens? The the thing that's always difficult with leaderships is is gauging where the horses are relative to each other. You only have a couple of real concrete moments, and they become less concrete almost with every passing year. And, and obviously, the big one is membership sales. And depending on how the leadership race is structured, you may have a very good idea of what memberships came through a different candidate, or you may have a no idea whatsoever. And um, one of the challenges with measuring leadership membership sales is that it tends to be campaigns that are very well coordinated that turn in membership stamped with the name of that leader. But campaigns that have a lot of grassroots fire, those people will find the membership form on the Conservative Party website anyhow, and they will buy that membership. And it can really kind of throw things out and up and around, and, and you don't really know who's got those memberships and who doesn't. And um, my understanding, and it could be wrong because I've been following this leadership race with the same interest as every other Canadian, which is to say not really at all, <laughs> but but is that Peter McKay turned in the most memberships, right? He did the, he did the bulk things, but that there's an awful lot of memberships outstanding and it, it's hard to necessarily see where they are. And the other thing is the more a candidate acts like the establishment and is blasting out to all of the past members. This is how you renew. These are the these are the methodologies to do that. Click here to register. Those may be tagged as a McKay membership, but they may not be a McKay membership because you got to keep in mind that any of those renewals and any of that list is is open to everybody, and they're just going to click the link that's most relevant. So, I mean, it's tough to say. And normally, how we do try to say is we look at the activity around a leadership campaign. How many people are showing up at their rallies? What do the contributions look like? But as Carter said, this is such a different time. Like we don't have those rallies. One of the ways we knew Trump was doing well in the Republican race, even when polls were not necessarily saying that, was everybody was showing up. He had a ton of enthusiasm. Uh, scary, but it was enthusiasm nonetheless. We don't have that measure. We don't. We don't have any idea if Leslie Lewis is is this you know candidate that's going to come up and, and win it all somehow, or we don't know if Aaron O'Toole is miles ahead. We don't know if Peter McKay's got all of the enthusiasm, and we just can't see it. Although I'm pretty confident that last one's not the case. We just don't know. Carter, I, I want to take Corey's point, uh, which I think was a very good summation of of how hard it is to read said tea leaves in in a race like this. But is this a a explain to me? Like I I don't even know if I understand. Is this a problem that the Conservative Party invented for themselves to have this race go so far right? Some would say with social conservatives dominating the agenda, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's these um, there's this myth that there's a perfect way to run a leadership. And the myth has it right now that one member, one vote is the perfect way to run a, a member, a, a leadership, because you get to expand the base of the party. Well, it doesn't actually work that way. You wind up expanding the base of the party into special interests, and the special interests that Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole are looking at as they're as they're running this particular race is that um, is that of the kind of the social conservative right winger, because that's who. I was brought in in the last leadership uh, when we ran Alison Redford's leadership campaign. And, you know, we, we went out and brought in 
uh, kind of a more middle of the road type of audience. But we still brought them in. They were still outsiders. They weren't the people who were, um, you know, kind of the the lifeblood of, of the party. I mean, I'm still a real big fan of the delegated convention uh, because it, you know, the people who go to a delegated convention are the people who who live and breathe uh, either the Conservative Party or the Liberal Party or the New Democratic Party. It doesn't. Those are the people who will be with you in a long for the long term. Uh, if they're going to get you know get elected by their constituency association, travel to a leadership convention, and uh, they'll all you know fall in love with one another when they're there. This one member one vote is not a perfect system. In fact, I, I would argue it is a very unperfect type of situation, and uh, it's going to create real havoc for the conservatives as long as they continue to use it. Yeah, Corey, same, same sort of extension of what Carter's saying. Talk about the voting models a bit. Like, you know, both of you guys have have run leadership races, have uh, led candidates and, and worked on campaigns in that sense. Um, talk to me about how the one member, one vote strategy here is different than than perhaps a delegated convention of sorts. Sure. The, the thing about delegated is there's a million flavors of it. So maybe we end there. But if you want to look at the extremes, at least within this country, on the most open side, you have the Liberal Party of Canada, which has uh, the supporter system. Essentially, you just register as a liberal supporter and you're able to vote in leadership races and um, and, and nomination contests. And by the way, that, that system was created in Alberta when I was the executive director of the Alberta Liberal Party in a past life. Uh, and it was sort of adopted by the the federal party at a time when the liberals were quite starved for attention were the the third party. Um, because one of the benefits of a system that's more open, such as that, or the one member, one vote, which we can talk about in a second here, is that uh, the barrier becomes much lower. You create a larger pool. That pool is incredibly useful for things like fundraising. It's incredibly useful for uh, you know building that foundation from which you grab those next levels of of supporter. That's how you, you, you always want to move them up that pyramid, right? From, you know, supporter to member to, uh, and what's happened over time to activists, what's happened over time is we have pushed down the authority of the party to the lowest rungs, right? Uh, because that's a pretty quick way to get a quick jolt of adrenaline as you bring in outsiders and make them insiders. One member, one vote is you spend $5, $10 on a membership and you get one vote. And that vote is either weighted or not based on region. Right. It could be no matter where you are, where you show up, you're going to be able to vote equally or it could be based on your the number of ridings. So each riding gets 100 points, for example, which is the most conventional one at the federal level in Canada uh, or or some version of that, some blend, some hybrid where it's you get up to, you know, a uh, hundred points as a floor and any more members than that, you get more votes, some version of that. But the idea is fundamentally that your, your support is not filtered by a delegate. You, you vote and that vote either directly or in a weighted sense goes towards that candidate. Very low barriers for entry as well. Not as low as the supporter system, but pretty close. And then, um, the the delegated system can take on a million different flavors. You can have all sorts of different ways to apportion delegates, but the, the general one is people get together in a room and they elect somebody to represent them. And that's really where you can see horse trading and conversations such as come over to me if your candidate comes off the ballot or whatnot. And there's a lot of different levels uh, you can put between the voter and the delegate. And that tends to make it more about insiders. And uh, Or you can make it pretty 
pretty uh, direct. Like I'm voting for a local delegate who shows up. And it, it, parties generally in the past have done a version where X percent are voted for locally, X percent are appointed by people who already have party uh, position, and X percent are ex officio, we used to say, right? Because yeah. they are an MP or they were the past candidate or uh, they are the party leader for the region, then they are able to just vote. So uh, these have big differences in what the outcomes are. And, and and interestingly, what you find is that when you have a party convention that is more dominated by insiders, you might think that makes them more extreme because they're, you know, they've drank that Kool-Aid, they're, they're mixing the Kool-Aid, but you find actually the opposite. It's that parties get dominated by extremists when the outsiders are in control, uh, when the interests get in control. And so it's a really fascinating thing. And there is no perfect leadership contest. And, and the parties set up the ones they do in reaction to the moment they're in. Carter, I want to go to you on this because I think you've got a real life parallel uh, to what maybe Aaron O'Toole's facing right now, which is he's not the establishment choice um, and he's fighting against the internal sort of system in some ways. Uh, and he did something that you, I believe, had done with the Allison Redford campaign, which is he came out today asking, in his case, social conservatives, but saying, please make me your second choice. So you're kind of you're this is a very real life parallel to what you had faced about a decade ago, I'd say, with Alison Redford. So can you kind of point to me what the Aaron O'Toole strategy looks like right now? Because I think you've lived it in, in a past life. Well, I mean, the, the, the challenge for any front runner in any can in any uh, one member, one vote uh, type of campaign where uh, people fall off the ballot is that the number of voters will diminish over time, but you really want to pick up the second ballots of those that are falling off. If, if they don't choose a second choice, then they're, they're useless. If they do choose a second choice, then you want it obviously to be you. What happens is the, the psychology of it is that if you haven't, like if there's a defined front runner, and this is where Peter McKay is really going to find himself in trouble and should be playing down the front runner status. If there's a defined front runner, People have to decide whether and why they're not voting for that front runner on their first ballot, right? People like to vote for the winner. And so if they haven't chosen the front runner on their first ballot, then they're actually highly unlikely to choose uh, the front runner on their second ballot. It's, it's, it's kind of, why would I choose them second when I didn't choose them first? So they actually move to the underdog. And we've seen this over and over again. You know, Ralph Klein, Ed Stelmack, Allison Redford, none of them were leading after the first ballot. Uh, they all were, were behind here in Alberta. So uh, for O'Toole, what he's trying to do is pick up those second ballot choices. The, the mistake he's making, in, in my opinion, and, and I will concede we were running a three-person race, so it made it pretty straightforward, but at uh, least in, in the second ballot, um, the asking for a second ballot support weakens you. Um, we actually offered second ballot. We said we were going to, we were definitely marking uh, Doug Horner as our second choice. Uh, we clearly indicated uh, to the Horner supporters, we're on your side. And they voted for Allison Redford, uh, I think it was 85 or 86% uh, on the second ballot. They, they moved en masse because we sent them a, a clear message we like you, you should like us. Yeah, you're, uh, you're effectively endorsing them with a. A right. wish for reciprocity. Yeah. We were hoping for an endorsement from Horner, but he wouldn't give it. So we just endorsed him. Like, and, and we got the exact same outcome because the people, the people who were voting were far more important. And we've seen this in the delegated situation too. Like when David Orchard moved to uh, Peter McKay 
in 2004, I was working with Jim Prentice's campaign. And I mean, we were convinced that there was no way that David Orchard's people would move to uh, Peter McKay, but we never gave them a reason not to. It happened so quick, the endorsement from Orchard uh, and the and the weak sauce piece of paper that uh, that uh, Peter McKay had signed, saying that he wouldn't merge with Stephen Harper's uh, concern, you know, party, crazy ass party. Uh, we we moved. We weren't able to move them the same way that that, that Aaron O'Toole is trying now, and I don't think that Aaron O'Toole is going to be very successful. Please vote for me second, please, please, please. That's not. A winning message. Uh, Corey, uh, same question to you. Do you feel like O'Toole's strategy here to asking social conservatives in, in, in particular, I should make mention of that, that he did ask social conservatives in particular to vote for him as their second choice. Do you feel like they'll pay any dividends for him? Yeah, I do. I don't, I don't know what Carter's talking about here. Like The big difference between the the Redford campaign he's talking about and this one with McKay and Horner, or sorry, McKay and O'Toole is O'Toole is so clearly the number two. He can't throw, he can't say, hey, by the way, put, you know, put Leslie Lewis as your number three, you put Derek Sloan as your number, or, you know, two or, or whatnot. That's that's nuts because it would make him look like it was much more in doubt. I think that the move that Carter did by basically endorsing Horner as number two was brilliant, was really inspired, and I'll give him credit for that. But I mean, let's let's be clear, it's not available to Aaron O'Toole. He can't do the same thing. The thing about a, a campaign like this always is that everybody is running against the front runner. You may not know who your competition is beyond that, but you're damn sure that you know that you're not the front runner and that's why front runners don't do well on number two there's no harm and i think it's smart strategy for aaron o'toole to go out and say make me number two carter is you know removing strategy aside in your mind is this thing possible for o'toole like i'm hearing you say the weakness of the front runner like should we be considering the fact that the conservatives could have their second social conservative in a row as their leader like is it quite possible for o'toole I think if you study the math on these types of things, you have to get over 45% on the first ballot as a front runner in order to win the second ballot. So, uh, and, and with each, each successive ballot, the odds of you winning as the front runner diminish. Um, so you, you can't actually win if you don't win very early. So watching, you know, watching each person fall off the ballot is going to create momentum against Peter McKay if he's in first. Um, and because everybody perceives that he's going to be in first, it, does, it, it won't even matter if Aaron O'Toole, for example, is ahead by a percentage. So unless Peter McKay is at 45% or higher, in, in, in our case, Gary Marr had to be over 43 was the math that I figured. Um, but <clears throat> 45, it's a good proxy. Um and I don't think anybody's thinking that Peter McKay is winning on the first ballot. And if he's not winning on the first ballot, my money says he's not winning on any. Uh, Corey, you know, if if you're putting on your hat to to work for Aaron O'Toole, what are you doing right now? You know, you you seem unlike Carter to think that his plea for second place among social conservatives could make sense. What else are you doing right now as you as you try to ramp up momentum, knowing that you're not going to be first? You're not going to win this thing on the first ballot, but to give yourself the best shot on subsequent ballots to, to win this thing. Well, I, I mean, it, the same things you're always doing, right? You're you're making sure that you have the support, that you're ready to deliver your vote, and that you're able to come out strong. Because his doomsday scenario, if you're Aaron O'Toole, is that he slips out of 
uh, second at any any time because this is an instant runoff and it's just going to run away at that point. So uh, you you can't get so distracted with sucking up the support behind you that you forget that you've got to deliver the support and be there on that instant runoff ballot next. That's that's vitally uh, important. And, I, you know, it's evident, but it's it's important. And um, I, you've got to be going out and saying the right things to get those interest groups that you've managed to sign up to actually show up. It's not enough to get them on lists. That, I think, is the lesson we learn time and time and time and time and time and time again in leadership contests, that, that they really are contests about enthusiasm. Uh, it's very, you're not just asking for their vote once, you're asking effectively for the vote twice. It's first when you sign them up and second when they actually cast their ballot. And that's tough. And that requires enthusiasm. There's a couple of gates to get through there. Carter, same question to you around O'Toole. Like if you're putting on your strategy hat for him right now, what are you suggesting? Be second. Be seen as, as a very clear second, but be very close to, to, Mc, to McKay and be seen to... Uh, then be picking up momentum each, each step of the way. I mean, the trick is, you know, I think that trying to appeal to the uh, Derek Sloan type of supporters is, is tricky. Um, Lewis is a little more interesting. Um, I'm not sure branding people is the right way to go. I, I think that building a broad tent and build, you know, that, that uh, there's only, you know, building some sort of a slogan that people can get excited about or some sort of a, a communications model. I just, my problem is right now, the communications models coming out of both O'Toole and McKay's campaigns uh, just make me want to put my hand into a uh, meat grinder. <laughs> well, that's, that's colorful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Quite yeah. to you. If you're, if you're advising McKay right now, what are you, what are you trying to do? You feel like the momentum might be slipping a bit that you may not win this thing on the first ballot. Like what are some of the, the practical, if not strategic things one could do to try to try to ensure that uh, that that he retains his first place positioning. Uh, you know, in some ways, this is like uh, it's all over, but the shooting membership deadlines passed. Uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In many ways, the the outcome is known, except it's not right. It's it's done. But but insofar as there is ability to move within that, if you're the front runner, I mean, because that that's sort of, like everybody knows who their first choice is. That's why they signed up for the membership. It's a bit more interesting for O'Toole. But if you're Peter McKay. Um, you have just got to run the most optimal campaign at this point. You've got to get all of your vote out. You've got to grab whatever second chance support is there for you. And it's probably pretty minimal, but this is where you got to be tight. Um, because unlike Aaron O'Toole and unlike Leslie Lewis and unlike Derek Sloan, there is where there's some ambiguity. Now, who's your second choice? There's no real ambiguity for Peter McKay. He wins this thing as the front runner or he does not win it at all. Carter, I want to go to you in a second, but Corey, follow up on that. Are you, if you know that you are slipping and you're in first, right? If you know that you're slipping, but you're still in first, are you trying to play it safe or are you going bold right now? Are you trying to do stuff as if you were in third, knowing that it's as just as good as being in third, as being a first place uh, guy who's, who's slipping? I guess what I'm saying is I think it's unlikely that you're slipping. Uh, as soon as you've gotten over that hurdle to purchase for a member, uh, you know, the next hurdle is one of action, but it's probably not likely that you're going to hit change. So um, it, it really is about getting out the vote and optimization. Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm buying that. I've, I've seen, you know, a lot of leaderships where people are shifting after they've purchased the membership. I know that the young And when I say slipping, I think I mean momentum too, right? Not just the yeah. fact that, that the result might be baked in from a quantitative sense, but from the internal momentum of, of, of what a first place campaign may need to look like. 
I mean, I think I sold. I think I. I think I sold thirty percent of Andrew Wilkinson's memberships. We, you know, like we sold way more memberships with Young, but we didn't capture anybody's attention. There's two things I would be doing if I were in the Peter McKay camp. Number one, I'd be coming at it like I'm in third place, and I'd be trying to come up with something that sounds pretty damned interesting. And number two, I'd be trying to make O'Toole fuck up. I would be trying. I'd be looking for his Achilles heel, and I would be forcing him into positions that he doesn't want to take at times that he doesn't want to take them. And I would look at like I only have a couple months left. I'm not or a couple weeks left. I'm not sure how much attention. Like you've gotten no attention in the last six weeks. How much attention are you going to get in the next six weeks? It's going to be tough. It's going to be real tough. A big fuck up would be real nice. Let me close the bracket on the fact of this race, and let's just assume we're on the day that they elect. Do the conservatives to have a fighting chance have to elect McKay, even if it's a hobbled, lower enthusiasm version of Peter McKay to have a chance? Do they have to elect them, Corey? No, I mean, I think we've seen time and again that candidates that we are told are just fatal to a party's chances end up in power. They, they move the Overton window and life goes on like the conversation just rebalances around the new candidate. Plus, I don't think that I don't think we're electing anyone anymore. I think we unelect people. I think we vote against far more than we're voting for. And uh, people in, in a couple of years may decide that they're going to vote against Justin Trudeau and, you know, Lewis or Sloan could be the leader and they'll, they'll, they'll switch over. I mean, we elected Jason Kenney. Let's move it on to our next segment. Our next segment, baby, push my poll. Guys, I want to talk about <laughs> just the worst, just the worst so or good. the best. No, so good. It's this juvenile humor that keeps people entertained. <laughs> Keeps you guys getting the five stars. We know this, right? Every five star yeah. review, four stars for me. You guys share the final half star. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about. I want to talk about something that that I think we are all familiar with, but maybe our listeners are not, which is polling in campaigns. And I want to start in in a very hyper localized way because in Calgary, here where the three of us live, the current conversation around the city's Green Line LRT, uh, which if you want to know more about it, just Google it and 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 the the bungling of of what that looks like in in many directions. However, camps have formed. One camp saying we need to build partial version and reimagine what the Green Line looks like, and the other group saying let's go with the full thing as planned. Uh, going forward. Both groups have come out with polling. And it's not necessarily polling that you would see from, let's say, a reputable pollster per se, although one of them comes from a polling company, but we can talk about that. But it's polling specifically intended to move the needle of public opinion. And and this is something we're familiar with on campaigns. And in fact, I say that we've all used it as instruments on campaigns. So Corey, kind of first of all, give us a hyper-local sense of what you see of these two polls. And I'll ask Carter the same. And then let's zoom out to have this larger strategic conversation of the relationship polls have in, on campaigns and specifically for the purpose of, of influence. Yeah, polling is um, has been weaponized, I think it's fair to say. And, and what I mean by that is people realize that especially on uh, what are more low stakes isn't quite the right word, but let's call them low engagement, low intensity issues um, that just going with the flow is, is absolutely something that people do and are willing to do. Uh, and so much of it is based on vibe. And on this issue, which is about building an extension of, of Calgary's mass transit system. Uh, first, we had a, a well-funded uh, group come out against the, the green line. And what they did is they released a poll that effectively 
had a thumb on the scale. I'm going to come back to that in about 10 seconds here. And then it was followed up by the pro group putting out a poll that probably had just as bad or worse of a thumb on the scale. And what I mean by thumb in the scale is this. A question is not a question is not a question. An awful lot matters in the construction of a poll. Like, let's not even just talk about who the poll is going to. I think that's pretty obvious. But um, there is a difference between asking, Zane, who are you going to vote for? And Zane, the New Democrats are a pile of garbage and the Conservatives are awesome. Who are you going to vote for? That's mm-hmm. that's one version of the push-pull. Another version is, uh, Zane, um, so I don't know if you've heard this, but some people are talking about uh, the Conservatives having attributes attached to them. Some of those attributes include slimy, duplicitous, awful. Zane, who are you going to vote for? Now, that is what we call an order effect bias, right? By asking questions before of a certain nature, we have um, we have introduced a doubt in you that is going to lead into it. And you see this all the time, even in well-constructed polls accidentally. Like if you spend the first 10 questions of a poll asking about motorcycle helmets, and then you say on the question 11, what's the most important issue in Alberta? You're going to see motorcycle helmets at 20%, as insane as that is, because that's just people, how they answer polls. So all to say... There's an awful lot of tools available to somebody if they're the very same things that reputable pollsters sit and say, okay, am I doing this? I better make sure I'm not doing this. I better consider the order of the questions because that could have an effect and I want to avoid order effect. Disreputable pollsters can say, all right, I'm going to leverage all of these things that other people try to avoid and try to get the result that I want to get. And this goes against one of my two axioms on pollsters. Number one is don't lie about polls. And number two is don't let polls lie to you. And uh, this is some version of both because it is full of lies. At the end of the day, this is not a clear representation of how people feel about the issue from either side. And 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 to be fair to them, if I guess that's the right word, these are advocacy groups. So they're not necessarily here to be brokers of of truth. Uh, so Carter, like, are you are you kind of do you begrudge this instrument going forward? I mean, uh, to be candid, I think all of us have used it in some way, shape, or form. Uh, on advocacy or political campaigns, but do you do you begrudge this instrument, or do you feel like if it's available in the toolbox, you need to you need to use it? As long as the media keeps being crack whores for polls, then I think that we're going to see these polls get published, um, the, and, and they really are. I mean, this is this is a tragically. I mean, I thought the anti-poll. By the way, did this get published in media? I, that's something I don't even know. I think it did. I, yeah. I didn't see anything. It was in live. It was in Livewire, which is a local uh, online piece, and I think it was on a couple of others as well. I know that the Calgary Herald reported the poll last week, which was tragic because the 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 anti poll wasn't as bad as this. Polera did the anti poll, and they did do a straight up clean question at the beginning, and then they put the thumb on the scale, right? The if you if if then. This particular question, the one that was for the pro-green line, um, the City of Calgary estimates estimates construction of the Green Line LRT project will create 20,000 new jobs. Do you support the building of the Green Line? <laughs> it's just the most <laughs> nonsensical it's, number, too. But. It's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. And yet it continues. These things continue to get retweeted. They continue to get pushed. And we right. are we fall for them. Um you know, and, and people have accused me of doing push polls. They say, "Oh, you do push polls, and then you 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 give them to the media." I, I've I've done message testing polls. So if you do, if, and I think Corey alluded to this a little bit in his in his Twitter feed today, if you ask a clean question at the beginning, 
and then you test a couple of messages and then ask a similar clean question at the back, you can see if a particular message resonates or starts to move people in the direction that you want them to go. So for example, if, if we were doing this poll properly, we would say, do you support the building of the Green Line light rail transit project going from Northwest or North Calgary into the Southeast Calgary? Something very vague, something that is gives them enough detail that it's not putting your thumb on the scale, but telling you what the project is. Because even the Green Line, what the hell is that? Right? You have to give, you know, they have to know what it is you're asking about. Then you could say, if you knew that there was 20,000 new jobs going to be created, does that you know, increase or decrease your level of support for the, for the project. And you can start to see how additional messaging or things that the, the, this Calgary, Project Calgary group wants to communicate, how they're actually going to impact the general population. That's how we use messaging within a poll to determine what will work and what won't work. You know, we did this with, with Rick McIver. And I, 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 the joke is that Rick McIver could have done anything anything at all, run naked down Main Street, and he still would have gotten 43% of the vote of Calgarians. They love him, right? He, there was no negative messaging that worked on him. But we found that there was lots of negative messaging that worked on Barb Higgins. And that's what we were testing. We never released the poll. We never gave out the after we put our thumb on the scale number because it's a worthless number. It doesn't exist. It's, it's a guide to to guide your messaging. This is a bad poll. Media shouldn't cover this poll. The people who released this poll should hang their head in shame. And I hope that it doesn't backfire on them tomorrow when they try and get the green line approved because uh, it's an important project for Calgary. You know, this is this this polling question was something I was intimately familiar with on the last Nenshi campaign. And Carter, I remember talking to you about it intimately because we had that first poll come out. I'm not saying that was a push poll, First poll come out, I'd say six weeks before election day, saying we were down 19 points. And then we had another poll come out saying we were up 17 points. And the reason I'm mentioning this example uh, is not to point to you guys as to why I have so much gray hair as of recent. Uh, and it's lasted so long. But it's to say that, is there a strategy here, Corey, that this was perhaps done to neutralize polling? Because I've seen that happen a few times, which is to say, you put out a shitty poll, we put out a shitty poll, all polls are shit, poison well, uh, let's move on. And could you think that could be part of the calculus here? I, you know, I, I think that's a really interesting observation. And maybe it was uh, just your bad poll, my bad poll, everything's neutral is is uh, pretty tactically savvy. I will give them that. But I do believe that this is one of those things that uh, if the media encourages, we are just going to be lost when it comes to polling entirely. So, um, you know, Carter is absolutely right. Message testing is not polling to be released. And uh, we really do need reporters to have some literacy in this matter. You know, there, there's some questions you should always ask if you're a reporter covering a poll, right? Okay, explain to me how you got your sample, especially if it's an online poll, because there's some pretty garbage sample out there. Uh, tell me um, the days that you ran this poll over. It should be a huge red flag if they managed to do it in a day. Right. Because that tells you they're just getting the first respondents. They're not filling out particular sample sizes here. OK, let me see the entire script. Right. I want to see every question you asked before. I want to see that you made all of this, uh, you know, um, accurately as represented as possible. 
And uh, then you need to be able to sit back as as a, a reporter and say, what else might I not be aware of here? And for God's sakes, talk to a professional pollster about what other kind of considerations might be coming in here. Acknowledge your own limitations in this space. Go into it and say, okay, this is this is pretty convenient for this side. Why why might this be problematic on a certain on a certain level? Because uh, you know. People have realized that there's a, a real weaponization of poll or value of weaponizing polling out there. Uh, you, that campaign you were talking about, that last campaign, uh, where uh, I believe it, it showed Nenshi, who is Mayor Nenshi, who won again. Way to go, Zane. Good work campaign managing that. Thank you, sir. We're going to upgrade you from junior strategist in no time if you keep that <laughs> up. Um, but... Uh, you know, there was a third candidate in that race who was a sitting councillor who just got destroyed at the end of the day because ultimately those polls showed showed uh, him in third place. And maybe he wasn't before these very questionable polls came out. Yeah, you know, and, and Corey brings up a good point here, Carter, which is, you know, how around the, around the media sort of filter as to what this looks like. But, you know, when we have worked on campaigns, all three of us, well, I think the one thing I can say we've noticed is that the casual data person on our campaign ends up somehow becoming a pollster at some point. They they end up, you know, they, they, they do message testing for us, right? So it's like, hey, you know, we don't have much money because this is not a, a lucrative business. So the person who's interested in doing data, which by the way, a uh, little secret, there's very few of them. So if you get them, keep them close to you, right? End up doing polling and such. And so, you know, one of the observations we had from that last Nenshi election is that some of the same people who are once data people on the other side started running little polling shops. And that's just by way of kind of introducing the question, Carter, because the threshold of polling today has become lower and lower and lower. And those people who've spent their time, resources, getting advanced degrees um, are now, you know, in a situation where they're competing with former data people that have now just casually started to do polling. But since there is no sort of barrier to entry, we can kind of see this sort of stuff. Well, this is a massive problem. And it's the, the, the polling industry itself uh, is working really hard to set up standards. So standards for the pollsters themselves um, so that when a poll comes from a reputable polling firm, uh, the media and, and others can know that it's it's at least meeting the, the standards that it should be meeting. Uh, these types of polls are uh, death for the polling industry, right? The polling industry was hurt by Main Street being so wrong in the, in the last civic election in Calgary. And it followed Main Street through the through the next elections. Uh, they got they they got much more back on track. But uh, if you make one mistake with either your sample size, your or your question structures, the question itself, you can fundamentally break the poll it, that you're doing. And again, the media needs to understand what they're actually looking for. I remember one event that we one campaign I did. It was a by election. Uh, in 2014, I think we all worked on it actually, and there was a poll released by the other side that was two weeks old. That the media call the, the media uh, picked up and ran as though it was recent. They, if if you don't ask the right questions, you run the wrong information, and you and it just kills you. And the poll becomes the leading indicator because the poll will tell everybody how they're supposed to vote. It's one of the reasons I hate these aggregators. The aggregators make me nuts because they're the leading indicator that, that dictates part of the result. Right. They're part of a persuasion mechanism. Corey. 
Well, look, I think that the value of a weaponized poll is really higher when um, you've got weather vane politicians who are trying to decide if they're on the right side of the issue or not. And so that's what we have to be mindful of when we look at votes tomorrow in Calgary City Council. Not that, uh, you know, any of our fine councillors would be weather vanes. Uh, and then the other one is on low information elections. So school board for sure, uh, city council, even mayor, where you're not basing it on a political stripe where you might have some opinions about it that have been informed by decades, but it's a name that's just come out of nowhere. And you're trying to determine whether that person is actually in the race or not and worthy of your attention because there might be 10 people in the field. Uh, to try to combat, and interestingly enough, to try to combat these things, election laws really do reflect the need to, to manage polls. And all of the tools are largely there most of the time for reporters who are willing to go and use them. You have to say who sponsored the survey in an election, either federally or provincially in most provinces, mm -hmm. who conducted the poll, when the poll was conducted, who the population was you drew from, how many persons were contacted, right? Uh, the survey's margin of error, and also the wording of all of the questions in the survey. So make sure that that standard that's set in the federal election, please, I am begging you, media of Calgary and beyond, ask for all of that information. Because if you're not basing your stories on that, you are falling for spin and you are just essentially giving free media to a very slanted point of view. And Carter, a final question to you, and, and it's kind of taking me back full circle to when I started this segment, which is, suppose you are on one of these campaigns, you see, you know, similar to Peter McKay, Corey thinks it's not a real thing, but you see your momentum slipping, you see like, you know, your, your popularity for what you're doing, uh, maybe waning a bit. You see this as an instrument that's available to you. If you're not out there to sell it to media, would you still use it with, with it like, and this is, I'm not trying to ask you an ethical question here, but there is something to be said around why campaigns keep doing this. Uh, it's because it works in some ways. And partially it works because we discussed the first part, media pick it up. The other part is that, you know, when people see it, they, they reconsider their behavior. Everyone wants to be part of a tribe that they feel like is winning. So uh, talk to me about that psychology a bit around its effectiveness and, 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 and the fact that that's still being used because it works. I mean, we predicted very closely when the poll when the polls were going to be done in 2010 for Nenshi, and we would step up our advertising to match what the poll structures would look like. So if we thought the poll was going to be a telephone poll, we did more telephone calls. If we did, because our theory was, and I see no reason to, to refute this, if someone answers the telephone for a poll, they're probably going to answer a telephone for uh, one of our calls. So we would call, we stepped up our telephone calls. If we thought it was going to be an online sample, we'd up, we pushed up our, our online advertising. And you can predict, predict windows. Like we knew that there would be a poll in the last week of the campaign. So we moved most of our advertising before the poll. When the poll came out, and it was, I think it was Ipsos, uh, but I can't remember which one it was, came out the Tuesday before the Monday election. We were in the game. We won. Um, the poll was the leading indicator. We were ready for the poll. We, we designed our entire campaign around polls. I didn't commission that poll, but you know when it's coming. You can do anything if you know when the poll is coming. Corey, finish so us you, off here. You want to know the real danger of that? Is yeah. you're helping polls lie to you. And so if ultimately you end up in a situation where you have convinced your supporters for that sugar rush of getting a poll that shows you up by two points instead of down by two points, and then you go on and on election day are, are lose, don't be surprised, right? And I do think that when you think about that mayoral election you were talking about there, yeah. uh, Zane, I wonder if the person who ran against Nancy, Bill Smith, I wonder if Bill Smith didn't maybe 
let the poles lie to him at a certain point. You, you, you were playing with fire if you were working with push poles or pushing poles in different ways, because ultimately that means that information is useless to you as well. Let's move it on to our next segment. Our next segment, the Alberta shit bag of shit. Guys, I've got a bunch of stuff going on. I really had no creative titles left. I mean, how could I outdo myself after baby pushed my pole? Uh, I just want to talk about a few issues happening in Alberta, just very quickly. Uh, and the first one I want to start off with, Carter, is a conversation that has been going on forever. And I'm starting with you on this on purpose. Uh, around MLAs and NMPs, but MLAs and political staffers blocking people. And I, I'm very curious, especially on social media, I'm very curious to hear your opinion on this because it is a conversation that's been revived in Alberta politics this week with uh, a, a press secretary saying he blocked 50 people, best day of his life. I'm paraphrasing. That's that's not exactly what he said. Uh, encouraging um, political staffers to block people. So I want to have this conversation on reconciling, quote unquote, democracy with, with uh, political staffers and in this case, politicians as well, blocking people. What's your take? I'm very pro-block. Uh, block early, block often. And the reason is that the, the person at the other end doesn't, doesn't need to hear what you want to say back to them. In, in, you have other means to get your voices heard. Uh, you can send a letter. You can send an email to the government. These are easy things to do. You are on Twitter and you're on Facebook and you're, and you're trying to incite a riot by, by putting your really wittily worded tweet together that's going to change people's minds and bring your side, incite your side to love you and incite the other side to hate you. So it is way easier to block people and then not respond to them. And it's not some sort of democratic right. No one has the democratic right to abuse anyone. No one has the democratic right to um, to Twitter. That's just not a thing. Uh, and, if, and if Brock Harrison wants to block me, and he has, I'm fine with it. If Michelle Rempel has blocked most of Alberta, and she has, I'm fine with it because every four years we get the, the real chance for our voices to be heard. Every four years we go to the ballot box, and if we don't like someone, we unelect them. Michelle Rempel is able to maintain a massive majority because most people like her, or at least most people like her party. But, you know, block early, block often. I've seen the death threats. I've seen the shit that especially female politicians put up with. It's beyond anything reasonable that anybody should have to see and scroll through. One time, you're done. And I don't care. I didn't. I wasn't that mean to her. I was just, I don't care. Their account, they can do whatever they want. Corey, same question to you. Do you feel like you know, this this blocking uh, is kind of somehow stands in the way of democracy? And would you apply the same lesson to political staffers as you do politicians? You know, Carter threw me for a bit of a curve with his ending there because, I, I mean, I, I want to echo that really emphatically. People are terrible uh, in in downright criminal ways online uh, to female politicians. I, uh, you know, I ran communications for the government of Alberta. Uh, and for three of those four years, Rachel Notley was premier. And the stuff that got said should never be said under any circumstances. You do not have the right to throw that at people. Uh, you know, that is one of those reasonable limits. I think that anybody could agree to if I shared some of the comments that we got up and the number of things that had to be forwarded to the RCMP, the specificity yeah. of the violence in some cases is awful, just awful. Uh, so if that's what we're talking about, block away, guys. But if that's not what we're talking about, if we're talking about this is somebody who is arguing with me aggressively, 
uh, well, keep building that bubble, guys, because all you're doing is creating the the bigger echo chamber, and that is ultimately self-defeating. And, you know, I, I think that when we talk about blocking, I, I'd like to contextualize that within social media more generally and just say everybody needs to stop. You got to fucking stop. Both sides, you're children. You are absolute children. The way you argue with each other and what you are doing is just so off-putting to the rest of us. Take away the keys to the car. They are drunk. And I don't want anybody to think my previous comments in support of political staff in general in any way move towards their behavior on social media. They are fucking losers on social media across the board. Nobody wants to put up with that nonsense. Stop. Our, our next question here. Okay. Let's go. <laughs> Zane I'm just, lost for words. It no, you made me. You were like, before. I was like, I was like, who, who, uh, in, in using a 2010 very localized political uh, phrase, who pissed in Corey's cornflakes? Um, oh, nice. Very nicely done. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it was, it was b- both of you. I, th- I think that was very insightful because uh, I thought you guys were both going to go in a different direction on that, on that particular question. Uh, another thing happening here in Alberta was our UCP government just today, replacing the judicial government panel uh, that that Minister Schweitzer is responsible for. Uh, And of course, the media article has kind of stated who he's replaced them with. And uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, some of those folks are past uh, PC cabinet ministers, donors, etc. Corey, what's the import of this? Is this this good politics on their part? Can they get away with it so they should? Or or do you have more concerns that that this could kind of uh, start creating a fracture for them? You know, honestly, I, I I wish that I had looked at the list with a bit more detail. I, there's a certain degree of here for me. It always comes down to: Are you actually qualified to do the job? And can you do the job? Uh, you know, everybody's got a political view, and can you do the job? Right, uh, especially if you're talking about judges and your ability to assess their competency in law. And doing the job also means being able to turn off your partisanship, at least to the degree of figuring all of that out. Ultimately, judges should be interpreting things you know throughout the law which is not to say there's not judicial frameworks that they look at and there's not judicial frameworks that are you know friendly or more to a left-wing or right-wing view but they should be consistent in the application even when it cuts against a political cause so i don't know who's on that list i will say the idea of a government replacing people with their own appointees is not it's disappointing, but it's not that shocking. Uh, I do think they probably should have let terms run out, but they they haven't for other things. So I certainly wouldn't have expected it here. And it's certainly not unique behavior. Um, I don't know. I wish I'd looked at the list more because then I could tell you if I'm mad about it or not. <laughs> Carter, good Pat politics. Nelson's politics. one of the names on the list. Uh, we're going back a few decades or a couple decades here. Former finance minister under Ralph Klein. Uh, my problem is the dismissals. I mean, we... So there's a someone in government usually winds up having to do the ABCs, uh, agencies, boards, and commissions, and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of of people get, getting appointed to these things, and frankly, um, I we we were struggling with it, just keeping up with the number of people who needed to be replaced. What I find particularly interesting about Jason Kenney's government is he's just going all out. He's replacing. He's firing people and replacing full, full-scale full wholesale boards, uh, not letting the terms run out. Usually there's staggered terms, so you're not replacing it. You have some history. This puts more power into the minister's hands, uh, and especially when you're putting your own cronies in place. These agencies, boards, and commissions are supposed to function a little bit at a government at, at arm's length. I mean, obviously, when you're appointed by government, you're going to be responsive to government, but 
this isn't supposed to be the minister's staff or the minister's people doing what the minister asks them to do. And when we erode this, we are actually eroding democracy. And the thing that really pisses me off is that the people who were the most opposed to this type of uh, nepotism were the Wild Rose members of par- um, members of the Legislative Assembly who are sitting beside uh, Jason Kenney in the legislature with their mouths taped shut. And those people oppose this shit, and now they can't even bother to raise a peep because they're in power, and God damn it, they're going to get some too. Corey. Like, this is, like, let's dial it down a little, old no, man Carter. Really like, 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 look, this is provincial. This is provincial court. Like they, they are not dealing with constitutional questions here. They're dealing with should my traffic fine be thrown out? I think and Carter's talking about a principle, though. No, it's, I'm it's, talking it's, about the provincial court. I mean, I'm talking about this one. I'm talking about the uh, universities. I'm talking about uh, the parole board that he wants to establish here in Alberta. I'm talking about old cronies being offered job after Janice Harrington being offered the provincial health uh, advocate role. Because she's qualified. I like Janice. Nice person. What the hell? So hold on, hold on, hold on. Do they even think that this makes sense? Okay, so bundle this up for me, Carter, because I'm trying to unpack one thing singularly. What's the political upside? Outside of the half dozen, two dozen, three dozen people that get these gigs, talk to me about the ripple effects of the political upside. Like, I, I don't see it. This is what maybe I'm having a hard time understanding. But what, 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 what benefit do they have from doing this outside of treating these people well? Ideological purity, number one. Number two is that no one will start a revolution when everybody's getting fed. I like that. <laughs> Look at that, dropping that out of nowhere. Boy, I think you guys both had yeah. great lines in this segment. Corey, do you want to add anything before I move on? No, I think one of the things we didn't uh, – yeah, I say no, but obviously, yeah. One of the things we didn't talk about was that the person who's the chair of this committee did not know they were going to be the chair. Oh, yeah. Year old man great, like, great quote by this guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, do, we don't even have meetings. Can't have meetings. I'm 83 years old. I'm told to stay home. That's the quote. <laughs> Great work. Great advance work on that I don't think he's expected to get that (laughs) phone call. All right, guys, let's move on to our last segment. Our last segment, our over, under, and our lightning round. Are you guys ready? Yeah. I always ask if you're ready. The question, are you ready, is the only question you really answer in this round. Uh, Historically, that's uh, that is uh, on a scale of one to ten, how many sharpshooters, that's a wrestling move, just so you know, Brett the Hitman Hart, how many sharpshooters worth uh, is the Ted Cruz and Ron Perlman fight for charity? Uh, and I'm going to go to you, Carter, because you told me, saying I never give you notes, but I'm giving you one note. You need to include this. And I had to look it up. And I said, what the actual fuck is going on? Uh, this Stephen, is a real thing. This is a real Sam. thing. Our prime minister has actually fought, you know, um, Brazo, Patrick Brazo, who is a senator. Uh, you know, so we've actually seen this before. I was thinking, you know, this is lunacy. You can't have people just threatening to wrestle senators. You can. The prime minister was okay. Now it's a boxing boxing match, but still, I mean, it's it's martial arts. It's mano and mano. It's it's fight to the death. It's, or it's case, Ted Cruz. It's Ted Cruz versus the guy. Is it the guy that plays Hellboy? Yeah, it's, it's not even Ted Cruz. It's oh, it Ted, Ted Cruz. Cruz. Yeah, yeah, telling somebody else. No, that- but Hellboy has come back. Ron Perlman has come back and said that he wants oh. now. He wants Ted Cruz, and he will 
He will also take Matt Gates. I think. I think both of them get to go in the ring against. So it's actually now it's almost a cage match. It's a cage match. So WWE has taken over American politics, and it makes me so happy. So in general, I give it an excellent. That's good. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Corey, do you want to even add? Don't don't even. Whatever. I feel like in a week, if you're listening to this podcast, you're going to have no idea what we're talking about. And it's just, this is just one of those just normal moments in Trump's America, man. The it's McMahon, just are going to make this a big, big part of the WWE. You just watch. It's going to be a big part. Our it's next question. Okay. Night, raw. Yes or no question, Corey. I'm going to you first. Should the Biden campaign lean into the current um, narrative around Trump's physical health issues? Um, they're talking about Trump walking down the ramp, how he drinks water. Is this, is this, are they playing with fire or is this something they should lean into simple yes and no question, but of course, feel free to elaborate. Yeah. I'm going to give this a ranking of pot meat kettle. I don't know. I (laughs) obviously Trump has got, um, a lot of chatter around him right now based on how he drinks a glass of water, uh, which is weird. Uh, how he walks down a ramp, which is weird. How he stands normally, which is weird. Uh, you know, the constant sniffing he does, which is weird. The guy Wait, is, is weird. Is the coverage around it weird or is it the way he does it is super weird? No, it's the way he does it that's super yeah. weird. All of this is, but like, it's also not new, I guess. Yeah. And and people do point to it and say, this seems worse and maybe, but I can think of, you know, he seemed like an Adderall addict in his first debate with Hillary Clinton. I couldn't get past the sniffing. It's it's not as though he hasn't always. Like, do you remember the the letter he had from his doctor about how he's the greatest physical specimen? And like none of this. This is all crazy, but it's costed in for Trump. And if it gets to be a bigger conversation about candidate health, that will not help Joe Biden. He he is very old. You say no, uh, Carter. Same question to you. Is this something they should be leaning into, or are they, to Corey's point, playing with fire? The official campaign should have nothing to do with this. I mean, this is what the Twitterverse was created for. You know, every Twitter warrior gets to do it. Uh, but the campaign just gets to scoot on right right on past. Shouldn't even come close. Carter, over under on seven, over under on seven. Uh, how smart politically was it for Trudeau to, ex- to, to say today that he's thinking of extending and will extend uh, the benefit, the sort of benefit going forward? Yeah, it's a B plus for sure. I think that people are really trying to figure out how they can get uh, what the, when they're going to go back. And, and some people are being very lucky and they're getting back to work and their revenues are going up. Um, but there's a lot of other people that will uh, will be left behind on this. And uh, this is not going to be a short-term project or a short-term problem. Uh, so, you know, the prime minister is doing the right thing by uh, giving people confidence that they don't have to worry yet. Corey, same question to you on seven for, for extending the sort of benefit. Yeah, it's a good thing he did it, but this is really underlining that it's going to be near impossible to back out of this thing permanently. This really does feel like we're walking down the road towards a a basic minimum income. Last question here on a scale of 1 to 7.4, on a scale of 1 to 7.4, how good was it that the DNC tried to convert Trump's 74th birthday into Obama Appreciation Day? Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but it went not pretty viral online. Um, Smart tactic was it silly was it stupid what do you give it who who are you talking to i mean it's a 10 for me because i think that he gets he he actually gets uh you know it gets under his skin i mean we talked before about the the uh the liberty ads that that are designed for the the audience of one um i like anything that just makes him more unstable just go for it make him more and more and more angry and it's very clear that obama makes him angry 
Corey, you tried to outright reject the question. Do you want to say anything? No, I mean, it gets under his skin, but so what? <laughs> like, honestly, what is like, how is this either moving the Democrats forward or how is this moving uh, Trump backwards? Trump more crazy equals good for election. Yeah, bad for world. I'll, I'll explain it to you. I'll explain it to you slowly next time. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave it there on that, on that, uh, on that lead balloon that Corey let out in the room. That's a wrap on episode 806 of the Strategist. My name is Zane Veldry. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter. We may or may not see you next time.